The title of uh, tonight's exploration is called Resting in Awakened Awareness, A Better Way to Live. Resting in Awakened Awareness, A Better Way to Live. This is from the Majjhima Nikaya 131. Do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has yet to come. Look deeply at life as it is, in the here and now. The practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. We must be diligent today. To wait until tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? The sage calls a person who knows how to dwell in mindfulness day and night the one who knows the better way to live alone. A better way to live. And this living alone, as we will see, is not a kind of uh, rejection of others. It's not a lack of relatedness. It's a lack of non-entanglement that we've pointed to over and over again. How to live without this entanglement that brings suffering to our lives and we in turn cause suffering to others. We've talked after the interviews today and we're uh, gratified to hear uh, so many people working with this uh, uh, invitation to uh, be conscious of consciousness, to be aware of consciousness, to be aware of awareness. All these different phrases and each person talking about how they do it and one person saying, you know, all you need to say to me is just just rest in awareness. I know how to do that. Don't give me any other instructions. And other people saying, oh no, it was each step that really helped. Or, oh no, it's this coming through gratitude that really helped me. Gratitude's how I found this awareness. So many different ways that it's been discovered. This is um, from uh, Ajahn Amro's Small Boat Great Mountain, which we read the earlier part in the workshop yesterday. The aim of the practice is subjectless, objectless, awareness. Subjectless, objectless awareness. The heart rests in the quality of open, spacious knowing. The heart, hear this, the heart rest. We get so fixated on the old coconut, huh? But in the end, it's the heart that's liberated. And this is, in my experience, a very genuine, direct reference the quality of open, spacious knowing. And there's the recognition of the mind's intrinsic nature. The mind's intrinsic nature. It is empty, lucid, awake, and bright. Empty, lucid, awake, and bright. Last night, Guy talked about it using three uh, characteristics, this uh, quality of, of Buddha nature, of Buddha mind. It's empty, radiant, and responsive. So uh, John Amro is pointing to the same thing using just slightly different words. 
there's always going to be different words, so we're sort of uh, called upon to be flexible about the words, but there's pointing to a quality of mind that does, in fact, free the heart. The heart is freed by the mind getting out of the way, the mind being in its own true nature rather than all of our imposition on it. And it's here and now. I use this term awakened awareness coming from the Venerable Sumedho in which he defines as following. Awakened awareness is the imminent act of attention in the present. The mindfulness that you've all practiced all these years. Awakened awareness is the imminent act of attention in the present. This afternoon, when Adrian was taking you through the thus come and thus gone, the thus comeness of it is this imminence in this moment. So there's imminence that's here and now. It's arising from this moment. It's very earthy. It's 360. It's in all aspects of our life. This 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 thus come, it's imminent. We're awake right now in this very moment because this is the only moment we have, just as it was described in a better way to live. The thus goneness is this transcendence where that we have we've uh, we're free of greed hatred and delusion the goal the goal the the inspiration the aspiration the way that we find the, the direction a path to what to be in thus gone but each step in the path is a moment of thus come we're awake right now we're awake right now and we'll see that it is the the one skillful means for staying on the path is this resting in awareness. This is uh, challenging in our lives, and yet what an opportunity. Here we are sheltered. We don't have so many distractions. We don't have to wear our persona. We have this uh, chance to be in our own companionship with our minds, since we're mostly in silence, and we can, we can be present for what's going on in the mind. From this point of view of resting back in the awareness. Again, one yogi was talking about uh, how for her it was fear that arose a lot. In this, the regular mind moments, a lot of fear would arise. But that she saw that if she rested back in this awareness, her relationship with that fear changed so dramatically. It went from this is fearful, I am fearful to, oh, fear is like this. Fear is like this. So our regular mindfulness experience, but from the point of view of resting back in the awareness, seeing the movie unfold of, of fear, or the movie unfold of wanting, or that we've got all of these new things going on in our lives right now, and it's, it's like it's a transition for us, and how easy it is to get caught in the transition. But if we drop back in the awareness, oh, there's just a lot of movement of the mind. We're no longer that transition. We're the knowing of the transition. We're resting in the knowing in a way that frees us from this, this kind of uh, taking birth in what's in the moment. When we take birth in the moment, ironically, we lose choice in the moment. But if we're resting back in the awareness, then we have choice 
of non-suffering over suffering in this very moment that is imminent here and now that's immediate to us. I'd like to uh, list a few of the benefits that I have witnessed in my own practice and in the lives of a number of different yogis through these many years of practice uh, uh, in regard to this feeling of awakened awareness. And I would start with uh, these uh, two qualities of mind that uh, often get referred to, uh, particularly by the monastics. And this is the viveka quality and the viraga quality. Viveka is this quality of the mind being secluded. The mind's in seclusion. Secluded from what? The hindrances? The wanting, the restlessness, the, 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 the aversion, uh, the sloth and torpor. It's, there's a kind of seclusion to the mind. And I would say a seclusion to the mind heart, actually. And, and uh, ordinarily we think of uh, getting concentrated as the way that the mind becomes secluded. I would suggest to you that as you include this uh, in your regular mindfulness practice, just as we've had you be doing regular mindfulness practice here, as you include more a sense of this awareness, this awakened awareness that you're, you're deliberately resting back in order to see more clearly in your mindfulness that there is a kind of natural movement to seclusion. And a number of you have reported this. You've reported having a kind of ease with back pain, a kind of seclusion with some sort of story where you, here's, here's that story that always pulls you in, but you did not get pulled into it. The mind was secluded from that tendency to take birth in that story. This is not the full expression of seclusion and all this, but it's, this, it's the feeling, this quality of, of the vega, of this seclusion of mind. Another way that you may have experienced this, and a couple of people ask us today about this, and, uh, and where Brian and I were working with them, about how the, oh, the mind's going towards a kind of uh, concentration. Is it okay that the mind's going to concentration? And yes, indeed, it is just fine. You're not getting out of the mindfulness. You're in fact moving towards a kind of access concentration. The mind is getting secluded because when we rest back in awareness, the mind is able to relax and not be pulled away. And so it starts to become more and more uh, uh, secluded, more and more collected and unified, just spontaneously, as opposed to just staying with one object. The, the, the one objectness of it is the awareness itself, this, one, this awareness, this one-pointedness, this waking, uh, re- resting back in awareness, this what I'm calling awakened awareness, is the one point that includes everything. And it happens automatically, as the, the two of you who are reporting this. It's not like you're trying to do that. By just resting back in that way, this, this, uh, this seclusion, this, this uh, collected and unified feeling happens. And so we can come into excess concentration 
from resting back in this way. Viraga is this uh, quality of being without lust, the mind being without lust, being without a kind of uh, material passion. And in this regard, as we're back in awakened awareness, we don't grab hold of our views. We don't grab hold of our stories in the same way. There is a choice because we're not so caught in these things that come up. And again, we heard a number, uh, all of the uh, teachers here on the retreat heard a number of stories like this of how you were working with regular Vipassana in, in that regard, and th- this was reflected in what you were reporting, whether or not you were necessarily aware of how this was affecting you, and also some very specific instances of how and resting back in awareness, that your mind did not get pulled into. And part of this uh, viraga is that our uh, our our views about uh, things that we, our point of view about things, and it's such a relief to not be caught in our view, isn't it? You know, I I was uh, a, a number of years into the practice before I really had a realization about not clinging to views. I'd, the Buddha, you know, I heard the Buddha's teachings of this from the very beginning, and I certainly agreed with it. But I would not say that it was a level of insight about that, because I, of course, had my views. <laughs> and there came a time when I, I just suddenly awoke to what this really meant and how much passion I had around view. And I realized that even if my view, in my opinion, was correct, that passion around the view, that demand of rightness, that clinging to the rightness of it, to seeing it as more than just view, it was view with a capital V rather than just little b view, what freedom it brought. That freedom I would describe as awakened awareness. It's just view, even if it's correct, so that I found that I could uh, be present for someone that was clearly choosing their suffering. They were clearly choosing their suffering and that I could not at this moment in time, be of service to, in some way, uh, uh, create an alternative to give them a choice. That no words that I could do, no actions I could do, could make a difference. But my view around their choosing suffering was when it was a big V, then I was adding to the suffering of the world because I became part of the suffering. I was rejecting that person as they were without ever realizing it. Because I, I didn't want them to choose suffering. But that's no reason to reject someone. That's no reason at all. At this moment, this is what this person is choosing. Who knows? Maybe in choosing suffering this moment, they will choose non-suffering later. Is this, is this the suffering that will awaken them to the truth of suffering? 
How am I to know? Why am I to uh, need to be away from it? Why can I not be present for it? That's just uh, one example. My own suffering, in the same way, the world. The, the, uh, it's very painful to see us repeat things that I've witnessed in my lifetime over and over again, to see us as a country, us as a society, as a political system, repeat mistakes that I have seen, that had I chosen rather than uh, a life of the Dharma, when I left daily life, chosen a life of political service that I might have been able to affect, but I cannot affect in the immediacy way that had I chosen that life I might have, to let loose of that to be available, to sit back and say, it's like this. This awakened awareness truly feels, not theoretical, truly feels it's like this. The knowing, this knowing is our shelter. This knowing is our comfort. It empowers our being able to stay present. It came up uh, and a couple of different questions over the last few days. Well, when I'm in this awareness, it feels as though I'm distant from it as opposed to the regular way I'm being in mindful. And as Guy said so beautifully last night, yes, we are a little more distant from it, but we're not cut off from it. We have a way of being with it that in fact can be more present. This takes a maturing of getting used to this staying back in the awareness. But as you do that, you will discover that your heart becomes more available to be in the moment with it in this way. Um, I'm going to be doing a mixture of the mundane of everyday life and then this kind of uh, uh, more liberating quality and some of that teaching in this. And this mundane is um, uh, going to be imminent in this um, f- a poem that I'm going to be reading. And as you hear it, it's both mundane, but in the mundane is the pointing to the transcendent. How in everyday life, there's always this call towards liberation, towards letting go towards resting back in the awareness. This is a poem by Tony Hoagland. And if you've been in any of my teaching situations recently, you may have heard me read it because it's sort of my favorite poem of the moment. He's sort of my favorite poet of the moment. It's from his book, What Narcissism Means to Me. (laughs) Phone call. Maybe I overdid it when I called my father an enemy of humanity. (laughs) That might have been a little strongly put, a slight over-exaggeration, an immoderate description of the person who at that moment, 2,000 miles away, holding the telephone receiver six inches from his ear, must have regretted paying for my therapy. What I meant was that my father was an enemy of my humanity. And what I meant behind that was that my father was split into two people. One of them living deep inside of me, 
like a bad king or an incurable disease, blighting my crops, striking down my herds, poisoning my wells. The other, standing in another time zone, in a kitchen in Wyoming, with bad knees and white hair sprouting from his ears. I don't want to scream forever. I don't want to live without proportion, like some kind of infection from the past. So I have to remember the second father, the one whose TV dinner is getting cold, while he holds the phone in his left hand and stares blankly out the window, where just now the sun is going down and the last fingertips of sunlight are withdrawing from the hills they once touched like a child. You know, we each have in us these propensities, these wounds, these, these uh, clingings, these uh, graspings that are like a bad king or an incurable disease. They blight our crops. They strike down our herds. They poison our wells. This resting back in awakened awareness allows us to see that and to choose other, to choose other, to not be someone who is screaming forever, who's grasping to our complaint against the gods forever, who are, uh, where are we choosing to live without proportion. It's quite a worthy, noble task, choosing to be aware of suffering choosing to stay present for suffering so that we can know it, that we can stand under it long enough that we can see the cause of suffering. And then to be willing to undergo the renunciation of walking the path in order to have choice so that we can make the kind of choice that's being referred to in, in the poem. So there's, um, in my experience, again, with myself and others, there's these various kinds of joy that I have found in working with awareness as I've made reference to so many times. Awareness is a big part of my practice. Where am I hanging out when I'm meditating? I'm hanging out in this awareness, this space of awareness. Not always, but much of the time. And likewise, much of the time in daily life, but... This, this, this question of daily life we will address later on in the practice. So I want to kind of mention each of these five joys just for your uh, consideration and anything that stirs in you over the next few days. The, the first of these joys is somewhat I call the joy of trusting awareness, trusting knowing trusting knowing. In the, the regular mindfulness that we practice, we're busy examining. And that's very useful. I'm not in any way suggesting not to investigate, not to get in there and see, well, what, what is this? What's causing this? 
But there's also this aspect of mindfulness where the, the consciousness itself, the consciousness of it, that we, when we're trusting the knowing, when we're moving not to the doing of, the, of consciousness in the mindfulness, but resting back in this knowing aspect of consciousness, that there is access to the stillness. And again, in our various exercises that we've done, we've pointed to that, the stillness, where there is, uh, where uh, we're not, we're not that, we're not that uh, activity, we're not that. There's a stillness, and that stillness proves to us that we're not that. In this awareness, there's a sense of coming home, that there is a, a, a place where we can have shelter in awareness itself, as we read that first night, the, the refuge of awareness. In my experience of it, it's a kind of well-being that's independent of conditions. Because it's not caught in the conditions. This knowing is not involved in the conditions. It is free of the conditions. It is simply reflecting in our mindfulness the conditions. But if we rest, if we make it the, the, the point of our focus for this very moment... We're not, we're not in the conditions. We're not in the conditions. And again, that brings a, a, this sense of choice, this sense of, of the bigger picture that I described to many of you experiencing. And for me, at least, there's a great sense of well-being. Because that, that awareness has a well-being to us that's natural. It is this Buddha mind, this Buddha nature uh, echo, this taste of that in the awareness. One fruit of it, in my experience, is a sense of equanimity. And then that equanimity comes into the mindfulness, and it empowers the mindfulness. Mindfulness is, uh, uh, connects to what's going on, it sustains the attention on it, it investigates it using this awakening factor of investigation, and it, it fully receives it. That's how it, that's how it, the standing under the first noble truth. You can't really see the second noble truth if you can't stand under the first because you're not in touch with it. It's all theoretical. If you're not feeling the ouch, you can't really understand the clinging because it's in, in the ouchness, feeling the ouchness that you experience the clinging. Oh no, it's not some theory thing. It's really true. My clinging is making this back pain worse. My clinging is making this restless mind worse. My, my, my not wanting the truth of Anicca to be here, this constant changing, it's my clinging to not wanting it. It's making it worse. If we're not there feeling the ouch of the suffering, it's theoretical. It's not real. This, this uh, awakened awareness allows us in their mindfulness to stay present in that way. I sometimes call it being available to the Dhamma. And I will ask people on retreat, so just notice in your practice, and you each, if you choose, can do this tomorrow, are you being available to the Dhamma right now? Are you being available to the Dhamma right now? Why not? Oh, well, I, my back was hurting too much. I got restless. So you can stay with it, but you can also go back into this awareness. Try it. See if, oh, restlessness, but from back here, does this 
allow you to be more available to the Dhamma. When we are present for the Dhamma, the Dhamma does us. The moment self liberates eventually, not instantaneously often, but as we rest back in the awareness and we're available to the Dhamma, so often the moment will self liberate. And you have to see this over and 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 over again to start to trust it. At least I did. Maybe you're faster. Maybe you're more trusting. I was very skeptical. I really wanted to see is this true or not true. But I have found that it's true. You have to see for yourself if it's true. But the only way to see if it's true is to be available to the Dharma. To be available for the truth of this moment. Resting back in this awakened awareness can help with that. Awakened awareness is the imminent act, imminent in this very moment, intentionality, this moment. Awakened awareness is the imminent act of attention in the present. So, this joy of awakened awareness. See for yourself if it's true. This is the invitation. The second joy that I would suggest is the joy of being in the present moment. When we are in the present moment with mindfulness, we are the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. These, this, uh, the three refuges we take of refuge in the Buddha, it's the historical Buddha, but it's the, the, the Buddha mind, Buddha mind, this capability of knowing Dhamma. And then Dhamma, the truth of the way things is, Dharma, you prefer the truth of the way things are in this moment in this moment we are the buddha knowing the dhamma when we're just present so uh freeing uh, i made reference to the fact that on the six-week uh, retreat that i just sat i was uh, uh doing the um, uh, six-week retreat of back pain It was just a condition. The mind's going to be focused on something. Right? <laughs> Do we really think that, that one thing is better than another to be present? We have preference that's certainly better in terms of our preferences, but not in terms of being present. Not in terms of seeing the Dhamma. If, if we're present with back pain or neck pain or restlessness or I'm confused, I don't know what's going on, all the things that we're always you know, dealing with in terms of our mindfulness practice, it's just being present with what's true now. There is, there is more satisfaction in being present than there is satisfaction in conditions being right. Boy, I hear that. Do you really think that's true? <laughs> the difference between the ego's preferences and the mind's feeling of freedom, the heart's freedom. Is that true or not? I studied this for years. Because when I first got the whiff of it, I, I just couldn't decide. Years I watched, Did I, would I prefer to be fully present or would I prefer to have conditions right? This is like in that movie, The Matrix, the blue pill and the red pill kind of thing. Over time, we come to see the joy 
of just being present. What we're teaching on this retreat is uh, a, a skill, an exploration that will help you in your mindfulness to just be present and to feel the joy of it. This measure of including more of the awareness feeling in the, your mindfulness and uh, in, in our experience has brought this in this immediate way and then also in the towards the full uh, uh, liberation when adrian was talking today about thus come thus gone there is a kind of intuition of both when we're seeing this moment there's an intuition of how it is right now when we're feeling the complete liberation there's a different kind of intuition don't know quite how to explain that. It's uh, when I say different intuition, it's like it's though the intu- it, 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 it's what's intuitively being known is of a different order. Maybe maybe that's the way to say it. We get inspired so often when we hear the teachings of liberation. We tend to get less inspired when we hear the teachings of liberation in just this moment, of letting go in just this moment. But if we drop into this intuitive knowing, we can be equally inspired. It was inspiring to sit with back pain for six weeks. It wasn't fun, but it was inspiring. I had 22 months of this strange condition with my knees in which I had acute pain every day that would go from my knees to my back to this tremendous headache. 22 months of this. And one of the amazing things about that practice of that is for many months I didn't know it was a practice. (laughs) And I discovered that it was a practice uh, after some weeks when I realized that my mind had not been objecting to 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 this knee pain that had all this back and headache to it. That it was very unpleasant, but I was not objecting to it. And I hadn't tried to not be objecting to it at all. I had not tried. It was, in fact, the fruit of the practice, just in this imminent moment, time and time again, bearing fruit. It was fruition happening all on its own. There was not any doing. I wasn't trying to be a good yogi. I didn't say, oh, no, this is, this is what i got to practice with. I just didn't object. It was very unpleasant. I felt a real loss. It started when I was going to be teaching a month at the forest refuge. And, and so I, in the fall, so I was going to get to be out in those woods I loved so much as all the leaves were turning. I've spent many, many weeks over the years at, at, at IMS walking in those woods and sitting in those woods. And I was going to have all this time at the forest refuge to be in the woods, much more than I would have had in my regular sitting practice when I go just to sit. So I was so looking forward to that. The second day there, uh, I was out in those woods, and whatever happened in one knee was so bad that it took me hours to get back to the forest refuge. So loss, loss is like this. So much for that. But the mind, in, in reflection, I saw, did not go to objection. This was this, this joy of being present in the moment. There was a satisfaction of being present that sheltered me 
from a whole big, oh, I'm getting old and you know this is my day of walking in the woods and over and la, 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 la. I did not have any of those stories arise. It was certainly possible that I wasn't ever going to be able to bow again. It's only been, for 22 months, I couldn't get down on my knees to bow. It was just, some of you witnessed all of that. I would get stuck in chairs while I was teaching. And at the end of the thing, I couldn't get up to leave. And yogis would come up to try to help me, which made it much worse because they could not help. So just to relieve their suffering, I would just go into the pain again. Part of the problem, by the way, was that the the meniscus had torn and getting, had gotten caught in the condyles where they turn. And, I'd, and so every day I was tearing it a little more. And any time if I moved a certain way, I was tearing I didn't have no way idea that was true. I, of course, didn't go to a knee doctor for many months. <laughs> That's the trouble of, of too much, too much uh, non-attachment. <laughs> so there's, there's a shadow side of this always to be remembered. But the, I, I tell this story just as a living example of, of this. We're all going to have disappointments in life. We're going to have losses. Resting back in this awareness allows our mindfulness of being with the moment to have a kind of freedom. Just now, we're not like totally free. My mind well, it was not free of greed, hatred, and delusion but it didn't get caught in greed, hatred, and delusion around this particular huge experience, which would have been a lot of greed or hatred or delusion, right? So that's that joy, just like this joy, this, this kind of, this, this joy of awakened awareness, this joy of being in the present moment. And then there's this, uh, oh, one other thing about that, this joy of being in the present moment, to me, gives a kind of purpose and purity, so uh, uh, the, the, the purpose is, oh, I want to be present in this moment. That's more, impres- that's more important to me. That is my priority. What am I doing with my life? I'm being present. I'm being present in this moment so I can have choice, so I can walk the path, so I can choose uh, non-suffering over suffering. If we're not present, how can we choose? So the priority, what's the priority? To be present right now. So I can have this, the, this, this enacting of my purpose, the purpose of walking the path. I have a purpose. I, my life's about something, not just about external goals, not about my own comfort or my own having a good time or it being pleasant. So then there's this joy that can come from generosity and virtue. And the, the more spaciousness we have in our life, the more possibility there is of, of generosity arising in the mind-heart and of choosing virtue in the mind-heart. Generosity balances the greed that can arise in our mind. It's natural for greed to arise. We're not in original sin because greed arises. It's a natural condition of this realm. Uh, uh, the Venerable Sumedho will talk about desire as the natural energy of this realm. And uh, we can have uh, envy arise. We can have jealousy arise. We can have a sense of scarcity arise in such a way that it's very hard to have generosity when uh, we're so busy wanting or we're so envious of others and what they have. 
we, we feel scarcity. We feel as though there's not enough. And the number one sufferer of our sense of scarcity, of envy, of jealousy, of greed is us. Always. Always. We may not give to another what we could. And they, they miss that. They don't get that. And that may add to their suffering. But compared to our suffering of not giving, it's more. At least that's my experience. You have to look at that for yourself. Resting back in awareness, we can see the bigger picture. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling as though that yeah, in some ways I don't have enough. But in this moment with this person, I can be generous. And when I mean by generous, generous in praise, generous in attention, in listening, in helping, in giving credit and giving acknowledgement, mirroring back, reflecting someone's joy, someone's happiness, someone's pain, someone's confusion, being willing to be there with them. All of that to me is Donna. And then there is the, 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 the Donna of, of giving our time and of, of material goods, you know, giving money and so forth, time and service and all. But there are so many of these more everyday moments of generosity. And the generosity of giving someone the benefit of the doubt, such generousness in that. If we're like this, if we got the face at the window, so hard to see the opportunity. Because the face at the window, we've so narrowed in that our any sense of scarcity, any sense of envy, any sense of, of our wanting, we get narrowed into it because we don't have any width, we don't have any depth. We're just here. We flattened out experience. There's not a person in this room that doesn't know that's true. How, how the envy, the greed, the wanting, the feeling like, oh, I must, I must right now. It flattens. It flattens experience. No, no width, no depth. It's kind of like that. What a way to live, you know? And it's such an illusion. Because whatever it is we want right now, whatever scarcity we don't have right now, we're going to have another moment of it, right? Or there's going to be something else where we feel the scarcity. We can witness this over and over again and not do anything about it. Sometimes the mindfulness brings us to the wisdom that we, can, it, we really have a dramatic change where we are, uh, we're less like that. I've seen this in many, many yogis. Huge change. This practice has absolutely convinced me that human beings can change. And a lot of people don't believe that. A lot of people really don't. But I have seen people dramatically change. Some of you today that I saw, I've known you long enough to see your dramatic change. That's over time. In this very moment, learning to rest back, to pull back from that face at the window, to rest back, that can bring this possibility of generosity, this awakened awareness just in this moment. So we, here we are, we're, we're feeling just as wanting, there's just as much scarcity, but we don't believe it as much. We haven't, we're not changing it at all in this. We're not having some big full liberation. But we're back and we go, oh yeah, I know this. I know this. And I know how much better it is to not go with it in this moment. We're still 
of the, of the uh, inclination to go with it. But in this very moment, we don't have to. That's the imminence of awakened awareness. The choice in this moment, not some uh, long-term change in the moment. Although it does create the seed, that karmic seed, that will blossom over time. So the joy of, of generosity and the joy of virtue is this joy of blamelessness. When you're on retreat, you know, much of your day, you're blameless. You're actually not causing anybody harm. <laughs> and it's so seldom noticed on retreat. But that's part of why we feel good on retreat. But we don't notice it. I like these smiles. This is smiles of awakening. I can see the recognition. I'm feeling a lot of sympathetic joy this moment. To notice the, uh, this, 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 uh, this joy of being, of being blameless. It's a real feeling. It's very palpable. Daily life, you know, there's a little, it's a little harder about that because there is an appropriateness of sharp elbows. Uh, but those sharp elbows don't have to be without virtue. It's, it's, it's hard to find the way. A lot of my, um, my non-dharma work is with leaders. Where the, this is one of the things that leaders will want to know about how to, how to uh, be in the, the, the world in a, in a way that's got the kind of striving and not fall into this kind of um, behavior that is less than ideal. So this, uh, the, 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 the bliss of blamelessness, it's sometimes referred to, the bliss of blamelessness. So just tonight, or even just this moment, you can think about this day. Have you caused anyone harm this day? Probably not. Oh, you're thinking, oh, but in the kitchen, when I frowned at that yogi because I didn't like the way they were chopping the carrots or they were too slow. That doesn't count. That's not big enough. <laughs> now, if you yelled at them, if you scrolled, maybe there's a little, <laughs> just that one moment, maybe there wasn't so much virtue. But just think, you've been here each of these days and been blameless. Just notice that. How do we notice it? We step back. We're in this, this larger sense of awareness. We know, we know that yes, this, this is blamelessness. This is blamelessness. We've got the perspective, depth, width, knowing we know. This awareness, that's awakened awareness. So the joy of generosity and virtue, the joy of surrender, the joy of surrender. When we have this seclusion, uh, the viveka and the uh, viraga, this seclusion and dispassion, one is more able to surrender in this moment. We surrender what? We surrender our wanting external conditions to be other than they are. You've done this all, maybe a couple thousand times where you've just stuck with, you've stayed with, you've started over, you have surrounded, you have been working this, this, this uh, muscle of, of seclusion and dispassion, of this ability to let go, to let go. Because you're st sitting there, your body's hurting, but you don't get up, you stay. In that moment that you're choosing to stay, you're, you are letting go of this inclination of the mind to go towards what it wants. You don't do. At home, you get up and open the refrigerator or you change the channel or you, you know, go to your computer. 
Here you just keep sitting. And there's no great reward for it, you know? <laughs> it just keeps hurting, or the mind stays restless. That's fantastic practice in letting go. So you're letting go of, of the things that you want in external condition. You're, you're surrendering in terms of the practice being a certain way. You want the mind to be really peaceful or uh, acute or like whatever they're talking about, about this awareness, you're wanting that. And you're not getting it. And you're not quitting because you're not getting it. You're staying with. You're just letting go. This is the joy of surrender. It is preparing you to be with any and all conditions in your personal life, in relation to your significant other, your children, your work life, your health conditions, even your moment of death. This confusion around that moment of death. You are training something so deep and profound. This is the joy of surrender. And you're also surrendering the wanting your emotions and mind states to be the way you want them to be in that moment. I want to be in a good mood. If, I was, if my mind wasn't so restless right now, then I could really practice. But you're practicing anyway. And so in practicing anyway, it's easy to miss, but you're actually surrendering to letting those emotions be the way they are. You may be complaining about it so much that you're not noticing that you're staying anyway. So I'm bringing your attention to that and uh, with, uh, with the idea that tomorrow or in your 9 o'clock sit tonight, which we would like to see more of you sitting at the 9 o'clock sit tonight, <laughs> we will be taking attendance. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> that, that, you, that, you, that you have this perspective of, of, oh yeah, it's true, I am staying here. Well, yes. So if I don't look at what I'm wanting, if I look at how I'm being in the moment, there is a joy to being in the moment. What he said is really true for me. This is an, um, a poem. Oh, before I do the poem, um, I, I'm heartened to hear so many of you make reference to the three vows, the vow of, of, of renunciation, of judging mind, renouncing, comparing mind, renouncing, fixing mind. It was, uh, it, I mean, like so many of you, maybe like three quarters, in, in passing at least, made some reference to this. That is, that is all surrender. You're surrendering. Anytime you're renouncing each of those three, that is surrendering. And uh, so many of you were having insights about your life and seeing how those three things affect your mind, affect your moment, affect your day, affect your practice. It's great practice, but you, you weren't trying to do some, you weren't saying, uh, okay, I'm going to be mindful of judging. You actually were back in awareness. And as you had enough awareness, you had enough perspective that you saw judging mind arise. So you weren't being mindful and investigating judging mind. The awareness brought the recognition. So many of you who were saying, well, what is this awareness? That moment you saw judging mind was the awareness. There was that knowing quality of mind recognized judging mind. It recognized uh, comparing mind. It recognized fixing mind. The knowing is what knew that. That was the knowing. It's that simple. 
Now this is uh, this poem that points out a very interesting fact about this, a uh, 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 skillful means. It's called Look Around by Mark Nepo. If you try to comprehend air before breathing it, you will die. <laughs> Always helps to start with an undeniable truth, doesn't it? You're sort of already going along with him. He's got a lot of credibility. If you try to comprehend air before breathing it, you will die. If you try to understand love before being held, you will never feel compassion. If you insist on bringing God to others before opening your very small window of life, you will never have honest friends. If you try to teach before you learn or leave before you stay, you will lose your ability to try. If you try to teach before you learn or leave before you stay, you will lose your ability to try. If you try to teach before you learn or leave before you stay, you will lose your ability to try. No matter what anyone promises, to never feel compassion, to never have honest friends, to lose your ability to try, these are desperate ways to die. A dog loves the world through its nose, a fish through its gills, a bat through its deep sense of blindness, an eagle through its glide, and a human life through its spirit. The joy of surrendering is the joy of the Eightfold Path. It is the joy of the Four Noble Truths. Better said, the Four Ennobling Truths. If you wish to know the noble truth of suffering, you have to stay. If you wish to know the joy, the ennobling truth of, the, of letting loose of the cause of suffering, which is the, the, the instruction of the second noble truth, it requires you stay. If you want to walk the path that leads to the end of suffering, it requires you stay, choosing 10,000 times to stay. And if you don't, you do lose the ability to try. I've seen it over and over again. And if you want to experience cessation, it requires a staying. So often we want to get out of dodge. We want to get out of the suffering before we've stayed to know it. We want to have cessation because we're excited by all of that. Oh, that's my goal, that's my aspiration, rather than to staying in the cause, to staying with the clinging, staying with the grasping. And when we don't stay with the grasping, we don't stay with, with the clinging, we do lose the ability to try. The Dharma is serious business. Taking ourselves seriously is not very useful. But being serious about our practice is quite useful. Resting back in this knowing that we're involved in something that is ennobling, 
knowing that we know that this is ennobling, that what a human being can do with a life, this is one of the things that a human being can do with a life that is ennobling. And there's not that many things one human being can do with one's life that is ennobling. But this is one of it. Because it not just affects us, it affects everyone we come in contact with. And then finally, in my last three minutes, (laughs) there is the joy of awareness of the path itself. The joy of being on the path. What is mindfulness? Mindfulness is remembering. Remembering what? Remembering intention. What intention? My intention to be on the path. Joy of the path. Remembering. Mindfulness is remembering. Remembering what? Remembering to stay. Remembering to stay. How do I get to remember to stay? Oh, I remember that I'm being mindful. I remember what? I have an intention. I intend to be present moment to moment. Present moment to moment what? In walking the path. And how do I remember to be present moment to moment? Because that's intention, 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 intention. And then out of intention, the mindfulness, we see all the rest. All the, the, all the rest comes. So this intention and mindfulness are so joined at the hip. All from our wise understanding, of course. But it all then unfolds. The right action, right effort, getting concentrated. Just this moment of intending to be on the path. And because we're being on the path, as I mentioned earlier, our life has purpose. There's a priority. We know how we're relating to the moment. We're relating to the moment by being present. We're relating to the moment to see do we have choice over suffering or non-suffering. Therefore, we have to recognize, well, what's the suffering and non-suffering? But we know what we're about. Our value, our intention in this moment is to choose non-suffering insofar as that's a choice. That's ennobling. Ennobling. Even if we can't choose non-suffering, we are training the heart, we're inclining the heart to non-suffering. That is joyful to know that that's what we're about. We're bigger than just taking care of our ego. We're bigger. We're about something that's dramatic. It's really dramatic. It's so dramatic that we don't feel worthy of it. At least that's true for me. The hardest part for me is showing up because of taking myself as being worthy of this, of this, of being available for this ennobling. Over and over again, I have to remind myself of this. Maybe you're more fortunate in that. And so, this this ability to walk the path it involves so many different things. When when we uh, sometimes. Uh, there's these wonderful moments of bliss. I had a poem to read about that that I'm not going to read. But uh, more often it is just letting go of wanting the, this moment to be otherwise. This is from Samedo, and many of you have heard me read this before. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking, i.e. every mind in this room. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, let go. 
rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that practice and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit and then the Madhyamakaya and then the Prajnaparamita and then get ordination the Hinayana and Mahayana and then Vajrayana and then write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go. Let go. Let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. And when he says that, you can trust he means every word of that. Because this man's practice is impeccable. It's so inspiring. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure out, I'd say, let go. Let go. Until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) So when you think about what are they talking about this awareness, just let go. Let go. And then finally, if you have your booklet there, um, look at the back page of the booklet. This is, this is a reprint from the Zen ox herding pictures. And I have many different versions of the Zen ox herding pictures. I have uh, studied them a lot for my own practice. The two preceding pictures, uh, the, the, they're, they're this coming in our spiritual practice, there is, there's first this kind of realization of of the wholeness and there is and it's said there is the there is there is the awareness and the mountain and various language of that and then then the very next picture it says there's only the mountain so the unity has happened and you think oh that's the end the minds become unified with the all and then there's this picture where there's nothing and it's called no trace left both gone out of sight. The true Zen attainment is based on the lucid spirituality which transcends the holy and the sacred. It goes beyond Buddhas and patriarchs. The self that lives in the oneness of the man and the ox still remain as awakened self. And here in this very awakening is an impediment. But when awakened self is further transcended, it is truly immaculate and thoroughly lucid. There is neither ignorance, enlightenment, nor white ox. There is no high and sacred brilliancy on the solitary summit. There is no trace left. So when in, in the teachings that we've quoted about the unborn, uncreated, unmanifest, that there is the unborn, uncreated, and unmanifest in this Theravadan tradition, in the suttas, there's no trace. It's unborn, it's uncreated, unmanifest. We come to the realization of that in a very real way. This aspiration is, uh, allows these joys along the way. We have the aspiration. The aspiration is necessary for walking the path. The, the mystery of this transcendence this is really mysterious. 
to say that there is the unborn, the uncreated, the unmanifest, is very mysterious. I find that, at least, inspiring, aspiring. It is part of what balances the difficulty of staying with what's imminent. So we hold the mystery. We're inspired by the mystery. We, in our resting in awareness, it includes the mystery of all of this, which I think, which I, I don't think is not the right word, which I experience as being absolutely true and genuine. But that inspiration alone may not be enough. Thus the importance of the imminence of this awakened awareness in this very moment. So there's the transcendence and the imminence of this awakened moment that comes in waking and resting back in awareness, however you do it, through whatever way that you have access to it. So let's sit together in awareness for a moment. Rest in awareness. This is awakened awareness. (laughs) 